You're listening to The Five Games Of, a new special series of the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor, and every month I'm going to be joined by a special guest to discuss their career over the course of five games. Their first, their latest, and three of their choice. The conversation not only covers the games themselves, but also the stories of those games and the way that those games demonstrate how the industry has changed over the years. Um, we're not just going to be exploring development, we're going to be talking to composers, PRs, artists, writers, journalists, professionals from publishing and marketing. Last time we kicked off with Thomas Wazalone and John Wick Hex developer uh, Mike Biffel. Today we turn our focus towards the world of indie publishing with Team 17 CEO and owner Debbie Beswick. Debbie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, James. Thanks for inviting us. No problem at all. For the few people that may not know who you are, maybe a little just background on yourself. Sure. Um, my name's Debbie. I'm the CEO, as James pointed out, of Team 17. I think this year is my 35th year in the video games industry. I joined at the age of 16, kidnapped from school, and I'm one of the founders of Team 17, and I don't really want to dwell too much on our journey because we could just talk about that journey on its own. Um, but predominantly, uh, one of the key, key founders, and 2011 saw me do the management buyout, and we launched our label in 2013, and we launched on the London stock market in 2018. Nice. Okay. Nice and succinct. I like that. Okay. Let's, let's dive straight into your first game. So first title for you, and indeed first title for Team 17, was Full Contact. Uh, this was released for Amiga in 1991, developed and published by Team 17. It was a one-on-one beat-em-up in the style of kind of Street Fighter sort of thing. Um, but it was more kind of uh, Oriental, like, I believe it was more kind of you know, Chinese-Japanese, that kind of that kind of stylings. Um, first of all, what was your role on this? You're 16 and kidnapped from school, as you say. Like, What, what was your role on Full Contact? Well, Full Contact was quite interesting. Um, I think when we founded Team 17, um, just to give some history, um, the three founders, myself, Martin Brown and Michael Robinson, um, we were all working together in a retail chain um, called Microbyte, which was one of the largest indie retailers across the UK. and we basically viewed this as we had the retail outlets. Um, we were doing some work with our shareware company, which was 17-bit software as well. And we had access to talent all over Europe that were making shareware demos. We had retail outlets. And we actually sat there and thought, why aren't we making games ourselves using the talent? We have the distribution channel. So in essence, it was where we kind of viewed it as almost like our own app store, if you think about it in that way. Um So what was important for us was the first game, what was going to be the first game and what we did, we having that retail experience that we had, we knew what games were selling. Um, And a lot of people will talk about Street Fighter in terms of the arcade side. I think Street Fighter 2 came out in 91 when Full Contact launched. But actually our inspiration for that game really came about from games like IK Plus, Way of the Exploding Fist, which was launched in 85, IK Plus in 87. Um, And that really was the influence behind. It was bringing a game to market that we knew had the opportunity to be commercially successful, um, but doing something very different. I think one of the key things when a lot of people will know Full Contact from that incredible 
intro scene that the game has. And that was very much inspired by Kickboxer, the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, um, and using the Amiga's unique capabilities. And I think what I find quite interesting um, about this game in particular we, it was going to be game one. So we set out, how do we make an impact and fast, you know, um, in games publishing? And so what we did was we created what was known back then as a full price game, but we launched it at a budget price point and the game immediately went to number one in the UK. Wow. That's quite the debut. It's a good start. I always remember, um, the buyer at WH Smith called me up. Um, I think it was chart. Uh, I'm trying to think chart track. I don't think it was called chart track back then. Um, that came out on the Tuesday and they called us up on the Monday and told us that the game had gone to number one in WH Smith. And I can remember sharing the story in the office. We just so you know, our early office was above an arcade in Wakefield. Um, and my fellow founders, they went off to celebrate um, in a local pub called the Black Rock in Wakefield. They were celebrating why the rest of us were packing the office, um, packing up and, you know, we had to build games back then. It wasn't just a case of produce a game and digital launch it. Um, you had to pack these games and ship them out to retailers around the UK. Um, so we were busy trying to fulfill reorders. And, but yeah, first game launched straight to number one. See that's cool in, in itself. Like that's a big change. Like like you say, um, you know, games nowadays are like they're, they're they're built, they're finished, and then they can be just dis- digitally submitted, and then they just go live, and then someone can download it. And you guys had to physically like you know get together the uh, the the cartridges, pack them into the boxes, physically send them out to all the retailers. Like that alone shows how. I guess in in, in a way, how much less work indies have today in in getting their game out into the market. Absolutely. And, you know, I talk about, and also bear in mind, we didn't have a thing called the internet back then either. Um, you know, and so you were, you know, my role, you know, my job was opening up the distribution channels to get our products out into the world, um, working with companies like Centersoft, um, I'm trying to think Leisuresoft, I don't know whether you'll even remember these names. Um, they were the key distributors in the UK back in, at that time. Um, so we was doing that, but also you were, we were games testing. Everybody wore four or five hats on their day jobs, you know, um, so sales, marketing, you'd be finishing the game. You then had to pack up the games and ship them out to distribution. But equally, you're doing all the sales side, you're doing the PR, you're doing the marketing, you know, you're doing QA, all of that. So many hats were worn and we were a very small team. I think it's important for people to understand. I think when we started team 17 yes we had good grounding and industry knowledge um from our retail experience and shareware but it was a very very small team there are only like three of us mm. when we started so let's explore that a bit more like the the differences in self-publishing games um back then mm-hmm. compared to now so like uh, this was Team 17's first game. You kind of you didn't have a, an, an external publisher handling it for you. You did it all yourself. Um, and there are there are ways of doing that now. Again, largely enabled through digital marketplaces. Um, you know, Steam, Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo eShop. Like you can, it is possible to set yourself up on those platforms as a developer and publish your game yourself without the need for another company handling any kind of logistics or anything. Less so with kind of physical retail, but. How different was it back then in terms of the barriers to self-publishing? Like, was there were there any kind of gatekeepers? I guess is what I'm asking. Like, for, you know, could anyone just like if they put the work in, like, make a game and then get it out onto these platforms? 
No, it was a really a, a very different world, and it was quite closed off. I mean, we're talking right now about the Amiga market, which was classed as an open platform. So <clears throat> anybody could make a game, but you had to have the ability to take that game to market um, through in into retail stores, distribute distributors. You know, let's just remember that the EU didn't exist at that time, so a lot of paperwork to get your product shipped around the world. Um, <clears throat> you know, digital is. You know, the way I look at digital today, it's very much your retailing direct to consumer, which is why it sits so well for us as a company. We come from a retail background. That's where we started life. Um, and so it's much, much easier launching a game from a developer's point of view. The hard part today is discoverability. You know, it's a mm. shop front. Um, you know, I always think of retailing in terms of zoning. Like I said, I spent quite a lot of time in retail. When you think of shop windows, when you go into a shopping mall and you see the shop windows, that's zone A. That's what you pay a premium for on your on the shop floor. You know, the back of the store, that's where all the bargain, you know, where all the older titles are, but you've got to really work your way to it. And when you look at a digital store in the same way, you know, if you get key visibility on the store, that's zone A. How do you then get visibility in zone B, C, D, E? You know, that takes a huge amount of effort. And unfortunately, you know, not, not very many developers have the ability and the skill set and the resources to ensure that they're ensuring they get that strong life cycle management that you need today. What was the discoverability like back then, though? Like, yeah, the the key feature positions are difficult to get on um, on the platforms themselves, but there are so many channels out there, both kind of through you know through media sites, but also you know like YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, all the social media to kind mm -hmm. of just kind of shout out into the void where. And there's a much larger audience for gaming now than there was in 1991. Like, you know, back in the early 90s, you're you're putting out full contact and. There's fewer publications in terms of video games with a smaller readership. There's certainly no internet, so there's no like Eurogamer, IGM, GameSpot, any of that stuff. There's no YouTube, so you can't just show how the game works and looks. Like, how do you get people interested in a game? Very simple. Um, we, I shared 17-bit software in the shareware side. We came from, we had that knowledge and skill set of the demo scene. Um, magazines were crucial, absolutely crucial. Getting your game on a cover mount on a magazine was just fundamental. Um, equally, we did some very clever things as well. On the games that we were making, we also included demos of our next game that was up and coming. Um, so we did a lot of different types of channels, you know, mail order was a big deal back then. Um, there was consumer events. They weren't like what they are today, you know, but you did have those trade events like ECTS back then, you know, which opened up, um, when you're looking for new export partners, you know, ironically, you know, I smile about CD project today. They were our Polish distributor for our Amiga games back in the nineties, <laughs> you know, and well, when you think about it, you know, we launched um, Silverball over here in Europe, which was one of Epic's first games, you know, and Super Stardust, when you, you know, which was um, made by the guys who made Resogun. So it was it was a different market, but, you know, it was easily contactable. It was a very closed off world. Everybody knew everybody from the demo scene and like I said, magazines were absolutely fundamental. And Team 17 were very much focused on the Amiga market and doing what we did. And, you know, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but when you consider between, I think, 91 and 90, 
four, we launched over 30 games. You know, we have 52% market share in the UK of the Amiga market in 93. Um, success came very quickly for us. Hmm. Well, before we before we skip ahead to uh, the mid nineties, like kind of a little bit more insight into the into the game itself, perhaps like what sort of game we we touched on its influences, but like what sort of games were were popular back then? Why why was it the full contact kind of took off beyond just the the the, the budget price point? I think. <laughs> The Amiga, the Amiga, you know, it was ahead of its time as a home computer, you know, but when you look at the games that were really popular that year, you know, it was the year that Lemmings launched um, by DMA under Cygnosis. Another World came out as well. You know, we also saw Civilization that year debut. We saw Alien Brood debut that year. Um, when you consider that, you know, just some of these games, and I'm only mentioning a few here, what a phenomenal year to hear some of these names that came out in that one year. I don't think we even spend, even today, we don't see where we sit and go, seven, eight key pinnacle games came come out per annum. Mm. It's, it, yeah, it's different nowadays, isn't it? Like you, you look back at the year's games and a lot of the year's games in recent years, like they're obviously building on what's come before rather than starting something new. And I, I grant you perhaps that's not something that we we can tell at this precise moment. It might be that in 5, 10, 15 mm-hmm. years, we look back at, say, 2019 and go, oh, yeah, that's the year that this came out and everything changed. But it doesn't feel like it, does it? <laughs> No, I think I think it's why there's so much excitement around the indie scene. I always say, you know, and equally back in the early 90s, games didn't cost what they cost today. Mm. You know, um, there was less fear. Um, break-even points were much lower. You could take more risks. You know, um, back then people were making games pretty much exclusively for one platform. Uh, it was very, there wasn't, I don't think there was such a thing as you could bring a game from one platform to another relatively easy. We didn't have things like Unity or the Unreal Engine. You know, so everything was written bespoke per platform. So it was quite costly in time, time wise yeah. as well. Well, let's get to your next game and perhaps the, the most obvious entry in today's collection. saw you release Worms for the Amiga. This is developed by Team 17 but published by Ocean Software, uh, later ported to the Amiga CD32, Atari, Jaguar, Game Boy, PC, Mac, Mega Drive, SNES, PlayStation, Sega Saturn and probably a few I've missed. It's the beginning of a long, long running franchise with so many Worms games I don't think I even bother attempted to count them. Um, What was your role on the original Worms then? Well, obviously, um, my job was making sure we picked the right partners, so Ocean Software, um, but helping build the marketing campaign for that. I think it's really important, you know, to talk about what was going off in the world at that time in video games. Um, everybody was really starting to talk about 3D. Um, we t- we rocked up 
here's a 2D game. You know, anybody who looks at the size of those pixels on a TV today just shudders, you know. Um, but we were firm believers in gameplay as we are today. You know, nothing's more important than gameplay. Mm. Um, and so it was quite an important part, but I think it's really important that I stress, you know, here reference back to Andy who created Worms. Andy, I think at the time was 17 or 18 years old. You know, he was in sixth form, um, very few people know Worms started life initially on a calculator. It was a game that he played in the equivalent of sixth form with his friends to keep them entertained at school, you know, and it developed from there. It then went on, you know, Total Wormage um, was the game that it started out as um, in a video game on the Amiga. Um, he entered it into a competition for Amiga Format, if you can remember Amiga Format. Um, the game didn't win. It didn't win. Um, and what happened was we were at ECTS in London. Um, Andy turned up at the booth in the same way that an indie developer would today, uh, one of our booths at PAX or somewhere like that, and said, look, I've got, a, I've got a game. I'd like you to take a look at it and see if you'd like to publish it. And he showed us what was an incredibly early version of Worms. Um, we ended up playing it at the booth for a couple of hours. We, you know, we should have been pitching, should have been selling our own games and we were playing this game by this teenager. Um, and we fell in love with the game, you know, and there's the story behind it is absolutely, I think after the, the show ended that day, we, the group of us at Team 17 gathered back in a bar as we did back then. And when we were talking about this game, Martin had taken his phone number. Martin lost his phone number that night. We ended up asking Amiga Format for his phone number so we could get back in touch with him. Um, and very similar to what we do today, we put a team together around Andy. Um, which was to build the game for multiple platforms, something we hadn't done before, and look at the kind of publishers that we needed. I think this is one of the key differences between today and back then. You know, to publish a game on console was incredibly expensive for cartridges. Um, you know, you had to pay for those costs up front. Um, we weren't big enough to handle that. And at the time, we were looking for the right kind of publisher. And there were two publishers that we'd zoned in on that we would like to work with, that we thought understood who we were, but also that loved the game as much as what we did. We knew this game would need a lot of attention in terms of marketing it and bringing it to market because actually, you know, we didn't have the luxury of putting a demo in everybody's hands. Um, how do we get across how wonderful this game is to play when visually it wasn't breaking any ground? If you consider at that time, a lot of people were talking about games like Rise of the Robots, you know, which was visually stunning, but no gameplay. Um, you know, and we had this game called Worms. Um, and so we looked at Ocean. Um, they were based in Manchester, an hour away from our offices. We've known them for a few years. And also we looked at Virgin. And Virgin were down in London and they had the Bitmap Brothers and other people on their label. And they were quite cool. And we had to decide, and to be totally honest, it was really, really hard. You know, I think either one of those companies would would have done a great job in working with us. Um, but Ocean, we chose because actually they were in the north of England where we were, and we thought they were an hour away from our office. This is going to make life a little bit easier 
in terms of how we communicate with them, how involved we can get with them. And very, very lucky, you know, the team that they had there, they really got behind the product in a really big way and helped us launch the game. But the biggest challenge we had on Worms was actually getting a demo in people's hands Mm. to play this game and appreciate it. There's a lot to unpack there, but I think the first and foremost is how on earth did Worms play on a calculator? Because I've clearly been using calculators wrong. Well, Andy did a very basic version of it on a calculator that he programmed. Um, and like I said, I think it, I think it were in his maths in sixth form where yeah. he did it. And it was it, that's where it started life. And then he, obviously he worked in a uh, gaming independent store down in Bournemouth and he developed it further, you know, mm. and that, yeah, but that's where it started. It, it's brilliant that it took off in the face of yeah, because I, I, you know, as you say, like we, the industry was transitioning towards three D, or at least you know, even as close as to three D as you could uh, could get. I believe nineteen ninety five was the year that say uh, I think it was Donkey Kong Country came out, which obviously is still two D, but with very kind of three D ish looking kind of graphics, and that was kind of stunning for the time. So to have, I remember how basic were the original Worms looked. To have that mm. still stand out, kind of as you say, like emphasizes the importance of, of good and engaging gameplay over kind of visual style that's certainly something that a lot of um companies and and nintendo in particular actually like have have stood out for over the last few decades like it's not about crisp clear 4k visuals about having a game that's fun um back then like there were there were quite a few games that were almost like trying to be comedies or or you had a bit of comedy violence obviously game video games were a lot less serious back then i think it's safe to say certainly compared with them today but what what was it about the worms that that stood out then do you think i think in essence the actual charm of the game you know i think um when you think about you know one of the things we always look at when we're looking at games is fun right we want escapism we want to escape and have fun doing what we do so and that's something that comes across quite a lot across quite a few of our titles across our portfolio um but i think Really, the key thing for it was the characterization, the humor. It definitely that Britsoft um, slapstick humor mm. that we are known for. You know, um, a few people tell me that they can spot a Team 17 game on humor. I think I'm still trying to figure that one out myself, but I don't think we see it ourselves because it's just who we are. Um, <clears throat> but the the game appeal, the humor, I think one of the things that we did do, because we really struggled to get, um, you know, let's remember this was the year that PlayStation launched as well, you know, mm. um, and consoles were becoming quite the dominant force in gaming. Um, we really struggled to get the game through Sony America. You know, we even, we we hired a bunch of animation people to make FMV um, just so that we could get across the comedy aspects of the game more visually that they may buy into. Um, and that really was one of the key areas of how we sold that game across to a wider audience that didn't necessarily just understand that little bits of visuals that they were. But the, I think if you, if you get the chance, have a look at some of those FMVs. They are still absolutely hilarious today. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna find some of those on YouTube if I can and in, embed them in the uh, the article which goes with this podcast because I I remember those from. So I spent a lot of time playing Worms at my cousin's house, um, playing Worms and losing at Worms, um, and and I remember those little those little kind of short, almost like cartoon clips. Um, yes, they they were fantastic. Like 
it's I think for for me going back to my own memories of Worms and you know the original Worms, the two things that that stood out and really made it. Uh, an impact is obviously like the the variety of weapons because everyone's got their favorites everyone's got and the the fact that each of them come with their tactics so like you couldn't help but feel smug when someone was close enough to leave a stick of dynamite next to them and then you've still got time to get away i personally i'm always a banana bomb fan anything because that just causes chaos wherever you are um but also and it's it seems like a really silly touch but like the fact that you could if i remember rightly you could name your worms back in yes, the yes you can and that yes. that made it a bit more personal. It's like you weren't just playing with four generic. It's like I I'd name my worms after my friends, and then I really felt it like when they died, a lot. Um, and yeah, and that's something that stuck through with the series. You can really kind of customize and personalize your worms, and obviously you, you've taken that much further with you know little accessories and costumes and stuff in much much later games. But I think that idea of of customizing your your player characters from what I remember, wasn't overly done back then. I'm not saying, like, Worms was the first or the biggest one to do it, but it, it didn't feel like the norm. Whereas nowadays, like, you, you name almost all of your characters in games nowadays. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, going back to that time frame, if you look around 1994, you had the Doom mods, mm. um, and we, you know, we were obviously big fans of Doom. Um, but one of the key things of the customization, you know, you can make your own levels in deluxe paint. You could even add your own voices. This was not things that were done at that time, you know. And obviously, these days we have things like Steam Workshop. Um, but it's, it was a key part, but also a key part of the marketing campaign that, that they ran as well um, in terms of, you know, we weren't just aiming at gamers. We were going outside of gamers to hit that mass market, you know, and the advertising campaign and the TV campaign, I think the cinema campaign was actually based in a school, you know, where you could take, where they were playing against their teachers and the headmaster was part of that campaign, you know, and we were showing a way that video games could be played much broader and wider. You know, I think as silly as it sounds, because this doesn't sound like a lot of money now, but back then it was a huge amount of money. The marketing budget, to give you an idea, was a million pounds. Well, that doesn't sound a lot when we say that today. That was a huge amount in mm. 1995. And so I guess that's a testament to, to how successful Team 17 had been to that point that you had a million pounds on hand to or not on hand but like you you were able to put together a million pound um campaign although i guess that's with the help of the publisher as well i imagine absolutely you know and to give you an idea you know the cost of goods of launching a game the way that it was launched across multiple platforms was over 20 million wow <laughs> you know and that's just to give you that's when we talk about the differences back then to actually launching a game today on console as a as a small company mm. we were a small company and that's why we needed a publisher like ocean you know they were very very experienced on console you know and getting those goods out worms was also like a real moment for team 17 like out of the five games we're talking about today um it's one of two that i'd say are a significant milestone for your company like you'd had hits before but worms took off my understanding is worms took off like far bigger than anything else and you know it's continued like it, it's it's now a whole franchise it's something that you guys still live with today like pretty much any games platform of the last 20-25 years does have a form of worms game on it at least one form of worms game on it i guess kind of two-sided question like back then when were the earliest signs of like right this is big this is going to be something we can develop for longer and then now looking back on it why has this lasted so long and what what impact has it had on on team 17 as a company 
Okay, I think, um, how soon did we know? Um, to give you an idea, I can remember the forecast being put together um, prior to the game launching, and the game launched um, November 17th, 1995, um, and it came on home computers, and then we managed to get the game out on consoles before. But I can remember the PlayStation platform um, at the time, because nobody really knew how this game was really going to go. We, we Everybody... Had, banked on we knew it was a fantastic game um but could we get this across um but i can remember looking at the forecast and i think the first year forecast on playstation was something like sixty thousand units and it ended up selling seven figures plus um in that first year to give you an idea just on that one platform um <clears throat> we realized very very quickly the game went straight to number one um and did incredibly well um which then took over you know it changed our lives overnight so i would say in terms of how soon did we know? Very fast, um, <clears throat> within days. Um, <clears throat> how did it change Team 17? You know, I think fundamentally, you know, I look back on that with, you know, a bit of a roller coaster of emotions. Um, I think it gave Team 17 stability um, for the following decade that was to come. Um, but equally, it completely changed the business that we were, you know, sometime, please do a podcast on how you manage success. We're happy, you know, more than happy to share what you shouldn't do, because honestly, we did everything that you shouldn't do at that time as well. Um, and we were incredibly young. And I think that's quite important to get across to people. You know, we, I think... We had phenomenal success. We had the world asking us to sign us, everybody throwing money at us to make make sequels. And we put lots of different games into development. Um, very few of them were ever released, you know, and it just changed everything. I laugh and joke about some of this today when I say, you know, we had the most expensive car park in West Yorkshire. Um, you know, I'm not proud of saying that. You know, I think the, the lessons that we learnt um, – but equally, I think what's really important to understand about Worms, you know, I'd love somebody to pinpoint back when the first ever indie game, multi-million unit selling indie game launched. Because um, Worms is one of those very first early games that did from bedroom to multi-million unit sales. Um, and managing that whole side. But yes, it, it's a key it's a key moment in our lives. Um, but I do kind of look back and think, for all that that was amazing, if we'd only been able to manage ourselves better, I don't think we would have given up on what we'd been doing so great in the previous five years too. We stopped doing all the wonderful things that we were doing and Worms took over our lives completely. Into your next game, then, and before we introduce the next game, um, <laughs> with, the, with the previous episode of, this, of Five Games of, we kind of joked that we're having a little kind of montage um, as we caught up with Mike Bithell's games. Um, we, in this instance, I guess it's almost like one of those uh, dramatic time cuts. If this, if this were a film, we'd suddenly fade from black and be 20 years later. Um, it was. <laughs> It was 2015 you released The Escapists. This was released for PC and Xbox One. It was later ported to Xbox 360, PS4, Switch, 
Mac, Linux, iOS, and Android. Developed by Moldytooth Studios, published by Team17. And we'll get into Moldytooth Studios' story in just a minute. But as I say, we've just kind of leapt forward 20 years. And you hinted at this in the previous, you know, the previous section, like... How was Team 17 adapting? Obviously, you were making a lot of Worms games, um, but how were you kind of keeping afloat, keeping things interesting, kind of freshening yourselves up? And and by extension, how how is the industry changing around you? Like, what did you need to do to adapt to keep going other than make more Worms games? Yeah, I think the fundamental part was, um, you know, we we talked briefly about the console market dominating around 95. That continued through to about 2005. You know, um, publishers at that time, they liked reliable, bankable franchises. Worms was exactly that. Um, Even when we were trying to get other titles away, publishers wanted that title that was guaranteed to shift a million units. Um, And so it was very hard to get new original games out the door. We'd switched from being this very agile publisher to becoming a total developer, um, working on just our own games. And it was just worms that we were making. So we were trapped in a cycle for a long, long time. You know, I, I think over a space of 12 years, we had 10 different publishers, which is frightening when I think about that now. Um, very little consistency. And, you know, we learned a lot of valuable lessons. Um, But 2005 to 2013, we saw the shift to HD consoles, which meant bigger development teams. But we also started to see digital distribution making its way forward. I think what Team 17 have always done very cleverly is we've always been at the forefront. You know, when I say we launched our first mobile game in 2001, I think it was, I think we did, you know, don't forget Worms World Party was one of the first console online games you know, for Dreamcast. Um, We did our first PC digital download in 2000. And we did our first console download. I think Worms launched on, Worms was one of the first batch of Xbox Live Arcade on 360 titles to launch. And we helped Sony do Lemmings for PlayStation. And we also brought Worms over digitally on that platform. So we were really in that cusp of watching the market shift um, and moving more towards, you know, mobile devices, looking at digital distribution and how that was. But we were still in that cycle of we had a game, we wanted to make it, we'd have to pitch it to publishers, we were looking for funding for those games. Um, You get paid fabulous advances for the two years that you're making those games. When the game launches, day one, wake-up call, you're recouping back the advances that you've been paid over the previous two years, and you're trapped because you're never building up that cash flow that allows you to build proper investment into your next titles. Um, And so I think fundamental shifts for us was the success that we had on mobile and also on digital as non-retail versions, Worms on XBLA um, sold 2 million units, Um, Worms 2 Armageddon did a couple of million units on XBLA as well, mobile, you know, it's in tens of millions where it's sold on mobile, Um, and that allowed us to start to build a strong financial base to actually look at where we move forwards to. It was also at the time where um, I did the management buyout and that was 2011. We spent two years completely restructuring our business. You know, Team 17 had been very much, um, and a lot of my fellow development friends at that time will resonate with this. 
And I used to call it a yo-yo developer, one-year profits, one-year losses. And it's usually based on the advances and the recoup levels. Um, and so we completely transformed our business. Everything changed. You know, um, I obviously became CEO, but we ripped out layers of management. We became a very different type of company. And that took us a few years to arrange. So after all this and this, this massive transition, um, you met Multitude Studios, uh, who was, I believe, a one-man developer at the, at the time. But although I apologize, I cannot remember his name at this precise moment. Don't worry. Um, Chris, yeah. I think it was late 2013. Um, Team 17 was showing we'd had a few years of back-to-back revenue growth and back-to-back profit growth. Um, we'd also launched Worms on, I think it was Worms 3 on mobile in August that year, which had gone to number one, or I think 145 countries. And we had a lot of inquiries um, at that time, people asking if we were looking at selling the business, if we wanted to do something. And to be totally honest, James, I'd only taken ownership of the company a few years previously, and that wasn't really what we were looking to do. And so that was the time where it was, okay, what do we want to do? What do we as a group of individuals want to do? How do we want to build this company going forward? And so we sat down, we looked at lots of areas um, where you know, when we talk about the previous few decades, I always say, look, we saw the good, we saw the bad, and at times we saw some ugly. Um, what did we learn from that? What what is this? What does the industry actually need? And we felt that they needed something very different to what existed at that time. And so we took our influences from the music industry, um, where record labels where they put the artists first you know trust me we had battles getting our own logos on some of those boxes of our games um you know and equally royalty reports and things like that and a, a world of that you know like i said we saw good and we saw bad you know um so we looked at around different areas of entertainment. We looked at the film industry and the way that Hollywood works in terms of the subcontracting out. We looked at the film industry where they put, um, sorry, the music industry, where they put the artists first and they build the artist profiles, you know. Um, and we we kind of put a, thing, a, a package together internally and we chatted about what would make our perfect games label who would we sign with and that's what we started to build and that was I think we announced at the end of 2013 that we were launching a new kind of publisher we don't like that word publisher we are a label and you know we're about our artists not about our own ourselves that much um and ironically I like you mentioned Mike earlier where you've been talking to Mike Mike's a friend of mine and at the back end of 2013 I was talking with Mike about some of this and he actually recommended a team to me and that was game one that we signed you know which was the launch of our label Um, but where the escapist became quite special in particular was um, it was a game that was on Kickstarter Um, I'm a big prison architect fan and i've been playing prison architect for I, I think about 18 months at that time but like and you'll resonate with this i'm a parent i don't have a huge amount of free time outside of work when I've, when you've got kids and i i was struggling to spend hours every night playing games like i wanted to but i still wanted my gaming fix i wanted to be able to jump into a game i wanted to play half an hour i wanted to walk away you know and i loved prison architect um, I was a fan of school days back in the days. I saw this game uh, on Kickstarter and, you know, 
I thought, how am I going to track him down? How can I find him? I backed the game. Um, I backed it. I was one of the key backers at £100, believe it or not. Um, and that gave me access to Chris's email address. And I emailed Chris and managed to get him on a call and found out he was based in Derby. And I said, look, I'm only in Nottingham. Can I come and meet you? We'll have a coffee, have a chat. And he told me he was too busy in the first instance. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, Dad. Um, but I'm quite tenacious. I don't give up. I did some research and found out he was a fan of um, Super Frog, one of our earlier games. <clears throat> and so I reached back out to him and persuaded him to come and visit the studio and he could have a tour of the studio and meet some of those people who've been involved in some of the games that he knows. And he took me up on the offer. Um, and also, because I was a backer, uh, I asked him to bring the game so I could see the game. And we had a chat. Um, took him, He saw the studio. We had a chat, looked at the game. And, uh, you know, I think one of the most interesting conversations I can remember that day was my creative director who, you know, has been working with me for over 20 years and some of the other people in the studio were sat there. And I said to him, but how are you planning to escape? And he went, I haven't figured that out yet. And I and I could see the looks on the people in my room. We make games, right? You do this. And I just looked at him and I went, don't worry about that. We'll help you figure it out. Um, and it was quite interesting, but you're right. Chris was working on a building site, putting roof tiles on houses. And fast forward a few years, obviously, by the time the escape, after the escapers came out, I think, believe it sold like something like 10 million units or certainly made 10 million pounds. Like, and it, it was a massive hit. It kind of changed his life and, and it changed the course of Team 17. But we'll, we'll get onto that in a bit. Um, I guess one thing I kind of want to pick up on there is like because that's another interesting change to the industry, and this is perhaps something I'll go into into depth on a, on another episode. Perhaps is, is crowdfunding. Um, yeah. As you say, like the escape is started to life as a, a Kickstarter. You know, compared to back when you'd done full control, there was no ability to just say, "Hey, everyone, please give us money so we can make this game, and then we can give you copies of it." Like that just wasn't a thing. But now crowdfunding is. You know, as much as it's been diminishing over the last few years, it is still a significant part of how many indie games get not just get not not just get funded but get noticed um it was obviously a year or so after um double fine adventure had done their big kickstarter campaign that really showed yes. how how successful this could be and I'd, so presumably chris was kind of in that early wave of of people kind of not jumping on the bandwagon as such but like thinking right well it worked for them maybe it worked for me and the amount of projects were that they were out there trying to raise money i mean even today that's still a valid way of funding your game right Absolutely. I mean, crowdfunding began, I think Kickstarter was 2009 and Double Fine Adventure, I think, was 2012. Um, mm. You know, but when you consider, I mean, we've worked with a lot of people on Kickstarter. Um, my time at Portia um, was backed on Kickstarter. Sheltered was, Blasphemous was, Ukulele was, um, and The Escapist was. But I think what's really interesting about The Escapist is it actually only it raised less than $10,000 on Kickstarter. You know, um, he had a thousand backers. Um, you know, it was the game. And again, you know, even talks about, you know, launching games on crowdfunding sites. You know, some just break out automatically, you know, but actually you have to market those games even when you're doing your crowdfunding campaigns. And many people can't do that. Um, and Chris, he was just one guy, you know, he wasn't really from the gaming industry, um, but it, he did. I remember it. It was just over ten, around ten thousand dollars, I think, um, and he had just over a thousand backers. 
you know, for that game um, when we spotted it. And I think that's what Team 17 do really, really well. We spot hidden gems. Um, we spot those core, core, core concepts, games that haven't, you know, where there's gaps in the market. There hadn't been a game like The Escapist for a long, long time. And we saw that, you know, and, and then it's how you bring them up to that next level where they become proper commercial entities where you can actually launch them and they can stand alongside A plus, double A and triple A games. The fact that Chris as well was was just kind of one man, um, and we mm-hmm. kind of we t- touched on this in the in the previous episode with Mike Bithell, like the the opportunities for one man publishers, because I guess it, sorry, the opportunities for one man developers, because I guess it kind of goes back to Andy with Worms, where Andy was one person um, who approached you at a trade show, had this game, and you kind of built a team around him, as you say, and and it sounds like this was a similar similar uh, setup with Chris and they're like right he's got the idea he's got the game's idea he can give him the kind of the expertise and the support he needs to kind of make it a reality like as much as this show is about how the industry has changed I guess that that illustrates how some things haven't changed it is it's still possible for for one person to to make a game idea become a reality and become an absolute massive hit albeit with a lot of help from you know an expert expert company like yourself I, I guess like I more idea on kind of how how the the process and the opportunities for one man developers has changed since since we you know since team 17 began yeah I, you know it really when we say what we're doing today um we're just doing a lot more of what we've always done in different ways um you know and that comes with experience and knowledge um and definitely age you know we're a lot wiser today um i think what's really fundamental you know when we talk about when team 17 was solely a developer publishers don't do that production value additions you know very few you can get funding um but the you know like in chris's case what we did chris made the game in fusion you know um and i can remember the first time he told me it was made in fusion i'd never even heard of it to be honest i had to google it um and that meant the game wouldn't be possible to take over onto other platforms and i think at that time it would have made it very difficult to even launch it on steam so we gave chris um development resources you know forget launching the product at the moment we've got to make a game here um and so we gave him coders we gave him designers we gave him artists and built a team around him and that's where you nurture the talent and very similar if you think about you know i think somebody put it to me in a much simpler way um last year when they said basically think of Chris as the singer, you know, and you have your session musicians or you have a band behind them, which enhances the production values of the game. And that's the kind of approach um, that we've never seen done in the games industry before. And that's where we really wanted to open that side up. And we felt that was an area um, that was sadly lacking in video games um, at this time, even with what was going off in the indie world. Um, you know, it's fine, you can ask for coders, but do you really know how talented they are to get access to, you know, in Chris's case, he had access to people that had been making games in, you know, I mean, Worms has sold over 75 million units. I don't know where it falls these days. Some call it indie, some call it AA, some call it AAA. Um, But incredibly experienced and knowledgeable development resources that he would never have ever been able to get, you know. Um, And that's where you really make a fundamental difference to the, you know, we talked at the start of this about the importance of gameplay. It still is the most important thing. You know, I live in the world of nothing's more important than gameplay. Um, 
but you've got to make sure that you're delivering to reach the widest audience possible and that's where that worked um you know there are people who can make a game on their own for five years and they come out and they launch and they become multi-million unit sellers the reality is there's very few of them that do that the rest take a huge amount of work mm. the escape has felt like um this the Escapist was the, the second title in this collection that I kind of feel like it was a moment for Team 17, certainly in my experience of the company. Um, yeah. Worms was obviously the one that defined you, that you know you were the Worms company, and this took you into full-blown indie label, indie publisher, set you on the course towards like you know publicly listed indie publisher, um, and it's kind of not dictated, but kind of influenced your strategy going forward. So we'll, we'll kind of skip ahead uh, a whole 12 months to your next game, um, and, uh, and take a look at how things were going then. Game number four was Overcooked, released for PC, PS4, and Xbox One in 2016. Came to Switch a year later, developed by Ghost Town Games, published by Team 17. Uh, this, I have to say, this is one of my favourites. This is, I, I absolutely <laughs> love this game. Um, this, for anyone who doesn't know, is it's a cooperative uh, cooking game essentially. Like you, you play, you know, up to four players can just take these little chefs. You're running around kitchens, chopping up ingredients, putting together dishes, all to order, and all in kitchens that because ghost town games are just pure evil keep changing so like you'll be on a pirate ship that keeps rocking and things move or my favorite being the uh, kitchen that it's a burger kitchen where there's an earthquake that occasionally splits the kitchen in half so you cannot access the other half of the kitchen um i i i particularly like i said i particularly love this game um but again, this, this kind of shows the path you were on by this point. You were finding these really interesting indie games. There were, we're back to this stage where there are smaller teams. I believe um, Ghost Town Games, I believe, was actually made in a bedroom. And I know this because a colleague of mine, I think, went and interviewed them in the bedroom. Do you want me to make you laugh now? Actually, the bedroom was um, post-launch. They could afford to buy desks at that point. Um, <laughs> the game was actually made in the living room. Okay. Holly and Phil will call me if I don't say this and t- share the story. Um, it was made in the living room. When the game launched, they made some money because these guys, you know, they are very special people and the way that they do things. Um, they bought their desks after the game had launched. Um, and that's when your colleague went and visited them where their BAFTA's on the windowsill. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, this became a, a BAFTA winning game. I kind of. I, I smile at the fact that it was a BAFTA winning game. That is the one time I was on a BAFTA jury and that was the category I was doing, family games. And I kind of pushed quite hard for, for Overcooked because it was just, it was best. One of the ones was a best family game. That's one of the, the BAFTAs they yeah. won. And this this has been so much fun with my family. Um, although I, I say fun. It's led to quite a few arguments. Um, my my sister-in-law and her then then boyfriend were just yelling at each other as they were trying to coordinate um and even now when i play it with my in-laws they they generally try to just purposefully sabotage whatever i'm trying to do like you know running away with a fire extinguisher having left something to burn that sort of thing um but yeah the overcooks a really interesting title because it's again these these smaller teams developing these really quirky really interesting really original games you're helping them bring them to market and it's kind of demonstrating the the opportunities for 
indies to stand out there and and you know compete with these much larger titles with much larger budgets and much larger teams you know overcooked won a, a BAFTA you know a couple of BAFTAs you know and, and the BAFTAs always have like these AAA games in every category so the two categories it won it's beaten some of the biggest and best teams in the industry which which is a testament to how well indie teams can do now yes it's phenomenal um I think you know I think they also won Best New IP. Then they've won. They won Game of the Year last year for Overcooked 2 at the Developer Awards and the, the GMAs. They won Family Game of the Year, which is just phenomenal, phenomenal. Hmm. One of the, the best things about the game I, I enjoy is, um, and it, it's indicative of a kind of a kind of trend you've seen, particularly in indie games, is it's very much centered around catch cop. You can play it solo. You will struggle, or at least I did. But it is best played with two to four players. And it's this idea of getting people back into the room together, almost harking back to the days of Worms, when you know original Worms you couldn't play online against someone. It was always you and someone in a room, you know, cross legs, looking at a TV, you know, throwing banana bombs at each other. And here we are again, everyone gathered in the room together, playing together, rather than sitting on your own yelling over a headset. Um, online multiplayer obviously dominated for a while and still does now. And um, the idea of playing people around the world from your from your console or from your PC, like it certainly had um, taken off since like the early the, the beginning of this kind of century. Um, and with the excitement around that, we'd be seen a shift away from the idea of local multiplayer. Like you know, fewer and fewer games supported local multiplayer. It was all single player and online multiplayer. And if you were lucky, there was like a, a two or four player mode. And here we have indies again, like really pushing for that. Let's get back to that that feeling of just having four mates or, or more, you know, in a room playing together, having a laugh. And Overcooked, I think, is a, is a prime example of that. Like, why do you think we've, we've kind of shifted back towards couch co-op and, and couch multiplayer? <laughs> it's a difficult one because for all of us at Team 17, it's never gone away. You know, it's, we're huge fans of couch co-op gaming, always have been, always will be. Um, I think what became interesting was, you know, and I, I wish Ollie and Phil were on here because they would tell you they pitched this game around the industry and everybody turned it down. You know, um, they'd initially pitched it to Team 17, I think, the year before. Um, and we turned it down. And the reason why we turned it down wasn't because we didn't love the game. We loved the game. We turned it down because we'd actually just signed Ukulele. And we knew that a huge amount of our resources would be focused on that over the next 18 months. Um, and it really only, I think it was the following year, um, around April, um, we were looking at very closely. I think at that time, our publishing team only had five people. And when you consider it's over 40 today, you know, in the studio side, um, must have been around, I don't, must have been 60. Whereas today we're over 200 on that side. Um, <clears throat> we didn't have the resources to be able to manage it properly. And it was really when Ukulele um, was looking to move out of the year and we'd had a chat. And I ended up phoning Phil and Ollie up and said, look, have you found a publisher yet? And at the time they were getting close, but they hadn't. And they immediately said, look, how about we drive up to you tomorrow? And they came up to us the following day and we sat down. And I think the thing is with Couch Co-op, we love Couch Co-op, you know, absolutely do. But actually finding Couch Co-op games that do something unique and something different is very, very hard, you know. And I think, you know, I can't say we've seen every Couch Co-op game over the last few years, but I can guarantee we've probably seen 90% plus 
You know, anybody who has a couch co-op game has been sending them in for us to publish. And there's a good reason why we've only signed one other, and that's because it does something different. Um, <clears throat> but for us, you know, it really came about, we're strong believers in it. Um, personally, you know, there was a couple of games that I was considering working on the previous year. Um but our team internally, I think this was the one we were still playing it six months after we'd rejected it um, because we didn't have the resources. Um, so for us, I'd argue and say for in certain sections, it never, ever went away. I think what Overcooked did, you know, bear in mind at that time, Gang Beast was already out in the market and that had done quite well. Um, Overcooked came out and went mass market. That went mainstream. That's where it brought in people who didn't play video games, you know. And, you know, I think when you find so it's a non-violent game, it's about working together. And maybe that's part of the secret of Overcooked's success. You know, it appeals to more than just typical gamers. But it was a game that, you, you know, I saw it on Worms. We saw it on others um, where... People just have to play and they will love this game. The trick is getting them into people's hands. And... I think one of the hard things at that time as well was local co-op. We had a big barrier to overcome. How do you get streamers to play local co-op? You know, most of them play alone at home, you know. Um, and so we did quite a lot of work in building the footprint for Overcooked in terms of persuading some very high-profile streamer friends of ours to actually encourage their partners who don't necessarily play games to play that game with them on live streams. Um and again, it comes down to the importance of gameplay. You know, great games will find their way. You just have to make sure that you can get them out there to an audience. And that comes in in terms of the whole marketing approach. I think we lifted, we bought um, the access for YouTubers forward three weeks to help the pre-orders. And it started from there. But Overcooked took us about 18 months to build it to the brand that people talk about today. Mm. I guess with uh, you know going back to the online multiplayer thing, I guess the, the, like you say, Couch Co-op hasn't gone away. It's just kind of drowned out by the likes of um, you know Fortnite and Call of Duty and like all, exactly. all the big online ones. And I think that that's kind of a, a thing that bothers me, as you say. Like you know, Overcooked is is cooperative and non-violent, and those are two key pillars if you want to expand your audience. As you said, um, I, people know I, I run a little side blog, Nonviolent Game of the Day, and Overcooked is one that I've I've inked, I've covered. I've covered overcooked too as well and these are games that can appeal to absolutely anyone um and those do those do leave an impact i think i hope certainly overcooked left an impact because it feels like it kind of i wouldn't say started a genre because i, th I think the the idea of genre um can be misused the, you know we, we won't get into the whole argument as to whether or not battle royale is a genre but um but it certainly kind of launched a style of game so nowadays i see i, I see a lot of indie games now that are um of a similar ilk they are kind of you know mm -hmm. they're almost described as overcooked but in a factory or overcooked about a moving van you know a moving a removal team <laughs> Um, which rather rather nicely brings us on to your final game. So final game today is Moving Out, released for PC, Xbox One, PS4 and Switch earlier this year, uh, developed by SMG Studio and Devon Games, uh, published of course by Team17. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think one of the key things that Overcooked did it, it woke the publishing world up. 
you know, I don't think, I think these games were struggling to get made. And I think, again, that's something that's really important to us. It doesn't matter, you know, what size the audience is sometimes, certain games have to be made and should be made. Um, and I think people now in the publishing world, even in the mainstream media where they wouldn't necessarily have covered a quirky little indie game, now understand that these games can break out if you do support them. And I think that's an important part. Um, but like you say, moving, ironically, moving out onto moving out, right? Moving on to moving out. Um, I shared, we, we have seen a huge amount of co-op games. You know, people know Team 17, not only for Worms, you know, we even did Escapees 2, local co-op and split screen and all that as well, Overcooked. Um, we have seen lots and lots and lots of local co-op games um, and we haven't signed any of them apart from Moving Out. Moving Out was the first one that we signed and that's because it had an original concept and it wasn't a clone of something. It was doing something different and the play style's different. Um, but again, it has core values that we see that Overcooked had in terms of reaching a wider audience. It's non-violent, it's fun, it's laugh out loud, you know, and it's the accessibility side that they've really focused on is something quite special as well. Yes. Now, that's just something I kind of want to dive into. So I, I've written um, an interview with SMG Studio on Games and Street Biz a couple of months back um, about the assist mode, um, which I found yes. fascinating. So... For those who don't know, um, assist mode is is a few settings that you can use to customize the game to your liking. So you can change it so that you can lift heavy objects with just one character rather than you know using two or three as, as the standard. You can change the time limit. You can change the number of hazards that are in the level. You can change whether or not you need to stack the van neatly or whether, you know, furniture just magically disappears into the van when you get there. And the idea is kind of making this game as accessible as possible for those who may not be as skilled or as focused on a kind of challenging a challenging experience. Overcooked is superb and I will never take that away from the game, but I I found the game to be quite difficult after the first 5-10 levels, particularly when you're playing on your own, and that is part of the appeal. But I love the idea of a game that lets you customize the difficulty and the 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 functionality to to suit your style, not just Obviously, an important include it, it, in, obviously an important consideration is people's physical ability. Like, so not everyone can handle a you know a, a standard gamepad as as fast or as, as as dexterously as everyone else. But it's also interesting to see that you can suit it to your style. I I am not great at games. I'm not. I don't have the time to be great at games. I get an hour or two per week to play them, which means any games that require you know twitch reflexes and fast you know hand-eye coordination and all this sort of skill-based stuff that keeps people playing things like Fortnite and call of duty and dark souls and whatever i don't have time for that i just need to sit down play a game for an hour and not be able to pick it up for another two weeks before i come back and pick up pretty much where i am assist mode enables things like that regardless of your physical ability so rather than me rambling further like from your point of view like what what does moving out show about the the changing considerations for accessibility because the, there is more there is more conversations about this perhaps not much as there should be perhaps not much as some people would like but there are considerations for right how do we make these games as accessible to everyone and that can be everything from like i say these these difficulty tweaking settings to simple things like ui like moving out you can change the ui uh change the font settings change the button sizes and i think even i think the 
to go to a much much bigger example uh insomniac were praised for marvel spider-man lets you customize the ui to the point where you're not squinting at a screen like i am because i still only have a 32 inch telly yeah i think i think first of all let's just remember we're making video games right and what do we want we want everybody to play our games so the more accessible our games are the more people are likely to play our games and the gaming industry is still growing um and so i think that should always remain a focus for anybody who's involved in creating video games. I think what SMG and DevM did here is phenomenal. You know, I've never seen anything this extreme regarding accessibility in all my time in video games. And, you know, we... I'm the first, this wasn't a Team 17 idea, by the way. This absolutely was the development team who did all of this. Um, and I think massive respect to a small indie team to go to this level you know, because making, you know, games are expensive to make and this has taken a phenomenal amount of extra time um, to do this. And so I think that's one of the key messages is if a small team can do this, why can't more bigger teams do this? Um, the larger teams are going to need more evidence that actually this does broaden audience and that's down to people like ourselves as we go on this journey. Uh, being able to share that back and look. But the reality is, if you want more people to play your games from all walks of life and all different areas, we need to make games more accessible. You know, um, we're very good at listening to our audience. We have a huge amount of empathy. You know, we're all parents. Most of us are parents. Um, and players are asking for these features for a good reason. You know, they want to play the games. We need to make them more available in the right ways that they can play those games. Hmm. On a similar note, um, I've seen the game also got praised for um, the ability to character, uh, the ability to customize your to your character. Um, two examples are things like you can wear hijabs. I hope I've pronounced that correctly, and you can put any character in a wheelchair. And the idea is obviously to make the the game more inclusive, and anyone who you know, anyone who's in a wheelchair or wears a hijab in in real life can then reflect themselves onto the you know express that via their character um again like kind of similar question like uh, the industry's attitudes towards inclusivity like we see it more in the indie space i'd argue but we are starting to see very slowly the acknowledgement that you know what yeah not everyone who plays video games is and wants to play as a beefy a, a beefy white man yeah yeah no i mean the thing, I think Overcooked um, had a character in a wheelchair um, and was commended. I've never asked SMG what their influence was, you know. Um, like I said, we, we're as hands-on as people want us to be, but equally um, we're as hands-off as they like us to be too. It's, you know, it come, we try and give as much creative freedom as we can to our partners. So um, I'm presuming they were either influenced by Overcooked or they were in, inspired by something else. Um it's absolute, again, it comes down to that point. If you want people, if you want to reach the widest audience possible, you have to make your games as inclusive as possible. There's so many games where, you know, if the character puts you off, why not give people a choice? Give me a choice. Don't take away. Give me an option. You know, and I think that's where the whole customization side of it should be utilized a lot more in video games. No, I agree. And as I say, like, you know, Accessibility, inclusivity, these are sort of um, 
these are topics that are mostly pushed by the indie scene, or it certainly feels like they're mostly pushed by the indie scene. There are some concessions or some some efforts in the the AAA space, but it feels like it's primarily the indies who are. I don't want to say taking the risk because it's daft that it should be taking a risk to make more people feel comfortable playing your game. But that does seem to be the attitude, like kind of from your point of view, and I grant you this is very kind of subjective. What is it that's going to take larger firms to up their efforts? Like when am I going to be able to play like a a wheelchair bound or a hijab wearing soldier in Call of Duty, as an example? Wow. Question and a half. Um, (laughs) They're going to need, you know, I mean, it's a, look, I don't work in the AAA world. It's not been a world that I've, you know, I've been close to that world too many times. Um, I love, I love the world of indie because there's so much innovation, you know, um, and that's quite, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I love seeing the different ideas and unique styles and so many different genres and crossover into genres happening. Um, I think for the larger companies, they need evidence. They need evidence that this works. You know, um, they're controlled in a very different way. The financial budgets are set in a different way. The milestones are set very differently. Um, But I think if titles like Moving Out, you know, are successes, they'll see that Overcooked. We already know for a fact most of the AAA developers that we know all play Overcooked. A lot of them are playing Moving Out as well. Um, Hopefully that's inspiring. But equally, other indie games will do the same, you know. And so hopefully they put those ideas forward let's start to wrap up because i appreciate i've taken a lot of your time today and i thank you so much for joining us let's let's bring this back to kind of your area of expertise looking back way back to you know full contrine in 1991 how has team 17 changed and by extension how has kind of indie publishing changed because back then as you say like you know it's a very small team physically packing away that game into into boxes and and sending them out to to retailers uh, by royal mail by the sounds of it um and now here we are indies can you know make their games themselves with these these all-encompassing engines that are freely available depending on which engine you go with and depending on what kind of tier you subscribe to like there's so much knowledge out there on the internet. The platforms are pretty much open. The barriers are down, as we keep saying, um, both on, on on the site and and on this show. Like the barriers are down. The barriers to entry are down. Anyone who can make a game, who wants to make a game, can take the time and the effort to do so. Kind of from your point of view, what what has what have been the biggest changes in getting us to that point? Bizarrely, in many ways, it's it's the same, you know. Um, (laughs) I know, I know, the internet's here, technology changes, but you know, I'm going to reiterate again: it's all about it's all about gameplay. It's all about the games. I think from Team 17's part, we do we. We do a lot more now than what we've ever done before. I think even when I started our label in 2013, if somebody had told me that at times close to 80% of my own internal development studio would be working on indie games to help our partners bring their games to market and on development side, I would never have believed that, uh, which shows there is such a demand for that resource and that expertise. Um, For us, it's all about helping those who need us to finish their games and help them finish and release them. But the playing field is much bigger now. You know, we're more global. I think 1991, we were Amiga only, UK and Europe predominantly, although I've got friends in America who did get their their Amigas over there. Then consoles brought us to America and Japan. 
digital, Steam, and mobile takes us to China and Korea. You know, um, we're playing on a much larger stage these days with a lot more opportunities. Um, as you say, the barriers are down. It is easier than ever to make games, you know, due to middleware, thankfully. You know, Unity and Unreal, we're huge fans of both. Um, now it's about actually making sure that you can not only bring your game to, it's bringing your game to market that that can compete. I think Indie 7, 8, 9, 10 years ago was very much the bedroom programmers or people who were making a game at home it's a different world now there's a lot of people who have left AAA, AA that have started their own studios and they're working in those 10 15 20 man teams and they're actually delivering very high production quality so now you've got to be able to compete at that level and that's where things like our resources help but also you know launching your game is only part of the journey you know it's building brands and building franchises and that's something that we're really passionate about you know we touched on at the start why worms is still around today it's because it's been looked after you know i know we've announced we're making a new game this year but we haven't made one for what four five years now um we look after our brands and we build franchises and i think that's really important people need to respect their creations and ownership of ip and protect them properly Debbie, thank you so much for your time today. That's been fantastic. Thank you. We're going to be back with another five games of next month. Uh, in the meantime, you can find your usual news show every Monday afternoon. You can get the Games News You Adopt this podcast via all podcasting platforms of your choice. And obviously, you can get your daily dose of news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. Music.